Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hey everyone, Glenn here. Welcome to your life. I'll be your host. Hey, uh, today we're going to get right into it. Ramit Sethi. I remember listening to his audiobook in like 2009, 2010, when I was commuting home in my little Mitsubishi Mirage on the freeway <laughs> when I was grinding away. So it's kind of cool to have him on the podcast. He's a big deal uh, in the American personal finance scene. His flagship book. I'll Teach You To Be Rich, sold all the copies. He's great, got all the followers on Instagram, and we had a good chat. Before we get straight into this episode, we're just saying at the moment that we have rebooted our investor podcast, My Millennial Investor. So if you're keen to have weekly small encouragement hacks, jump over and listen to My Millennial Investor. We're also doing some housekeeping at the moment around the Facebook group. Don't cry if you put an anonymous post up and it doesn't get approved. It's not you, it's us. We really want people to use their name and just put a post up. We can't approve all the anonymous posts. We get hundreds of them and some of them get selected. We choose a couple a day. There's not that many that get chosen out of the hundreds. So thanks for your patience with that. But the best way to put a post up is in your own name. Ask for a friend, quote unquote. Anyway, I'll let you get into this episode. I had fun chatting about this stuff. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about your life. And we're going to talk about couples and money. Ramit's got his journal, I'll Teach You Be Rich journal, and also a podcast by the same name. So get involved. Enjoy this. And if you find this episode of value, why don't you send it to somebody? I'm Glenn James. You're listening to my Millennial Money. Ramit, we're going to have a big chat. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about couples and money. We're going to talk about what you've been doing on your podcast. You've got a cool journal that's out. We've got heaps of stuff to talk about. I want to dive straight in and ask you, do you have a best money advice story that you've ever received? Or does something come to mind, the worst piece of money advice you've ever received and whether you've acted on it or not? Uh, The worst advice that I ever heard was, that you should cut back on lattes and you should never buy jeans and you should never do anything. And, and then if you wait until you're 95 years old, maybe you will be allowed to spend your money. I said, mm, no thanks. I don't really want to live that kind of life. And uh, I think if we're honest, a lot of people do not want to do that. They want to spend on stuff they love and they want to do without worrying about it. So that advice kind of rubbed me the wrong way and it went in one ear and out the other. And I'm just like, I don't want to play that game. I want to create my own game of money. 
one of your recent podcast episodes, you actually played a story of a, a couple and they were worth $12 million. And one of the comments from uh, one of the partners, I think it was the wife, would say, can we afford that? And then she admitted that they have a $12 million net worth and she thought that she was just upper middle class. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, you know Americans, uh, nobody wants to admit that they are rich, nobody. Even having $12 million, she goes, ah. I said, how would you define yourself socioeconomically? She goes, upper middle class. I go, mm, why don't we take the upper out of that and why don't we also take the middle class out of that? Because you're neither of those things. You know, I'm curious how it is in Australia. For us, um, in many ways, it is considered a bad word to be rich. And so since I've been writing, I will teach you to be rich for 20 years, you know, a lot of people raise their eyebrows. The first thing that comes to mind, let's be honest, is, is this a scam? And then the next thing people think is, well, rich, does that mean that I'm richy rich? You know, I fill up my gold coins and I just swim in them. I think that the word rich has a lot of nuance to it. I think that rich can be traveling for three months a year. It can be buying a thousand dollar coat. Rich can be having the freedom to pick up your children every weekday at school, but you define what rich is. With that couple that I spoke to, I wanted them to get comfortable with the idea that they were financially rich. They were extremely wealthy because I believe a rich life involves being honest, honest with yourself, honest with the people around you. And if you can't admit that at $12 million, you are extremely wealthy, then you can't be honest about other decisions in life. It's almost that whole thing like with the mindset of when I get to X, I will Y. And I'd appreciate your take on this because a lot of people are like, oh, I'll start to be generous with my money when I have money. I will start to invest when I have money. And as a weird segue, you know, the five movement, it is huge for a particular cohort. And I believe the FIRE movement is slightly changing a little bit in Australia because it really was be frugal for a prolonged period of time, build up a heap of money, then quit your day job. What's your take on the FIRE movement? Because now it appears to be more about, I've got this thing, I call it loot, life on own terms. A lot of the FIREs, they're like, no, well, I want to achieve financial freedom but I kind of want to start doing things my own way now. So it's almost gone full circle. I love any movement that gets people to be more conscious about their money. I love any movement that increases a savings rate. But I do have some real criticisms of the FIRE movement. Um, let's first start with the fact that living a rich life is not about how much money you can save. And when your savings rate becomes the metric by which you measure success, then we have a real problem. Because nobody cares about your savings rate. Oh my God, I have a 37% savings rate. So cool. Oh, only 37? I do 43. Nobody cares. I'm more interested in what kind of life are you living? Are you aligned with your values? Are you generous? Are you adventurous? Talk to me about that. The next thing is that deep down, we all know that there is a season in life when money is valuable to us. And I'll give you an example. At 20 years old, I went to Europe, I went backpacking with my friends, we didn't have enough money, and we created all kinds of adventures 
and had a blast, even though we didn't stay in the finest hotels. I went back recently, I had more money, and we stayed at really nice hotels. We also had a great time, but it was a different experience. And so for anyone who's prioritizing saving, I think that's amazing. But you've got to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this? If you want to be adventurous, let's say you want to climb Everest, you can't, you're very unlikely to do that when you're 75 years old. So that money would be better spent at a certain point in your life. And as much as people like to think that someday they will become more adventurous and generous, the best predictor of our future behavior is our behavior today. Yeah, a lot of the time I was actually a financial advisor for 13 years and I had some clients that were pre-retirees and it's almost that when I get to X, old Y, it's like when I retire, I'll take up golf. No, you need to start golf now. They'll never do it. Because they say it all the time, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be more generous later. I said, if that's important to you, if you truly believe that generosity is a value, let's talk about it right now. Let's, let's take a look at how much you tip. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I tip depending on service. I go, okay. Well, you know, Americans, we have a lot of weird things about tipping too. Actually, the more I'm talking to you, the more I'm realizing how weird our entire country is. But that's a whole yeah. other story. So I've, I've been encouraging people, Americans, to be much generous tippers, particularly during COVID. You know, an extra $10 or $20 for a lot of my readers does not mean anything to them. It doesn't change their finances materially, but it can be transformative for a serving staff who gets it. So I go out there, I go, you know what? I love simple money rules. I love to create simple money rules. I don't have to think about them. So what if your simple money rule is from now on, you're going to tip 30%. What would that feel like? And some people go, oh my God, I love that. I can automate being generous and I can do that right now. That's beautiful. And some people go, you're insane. And they, they really resent that. What I love about the idea is you can create your own money rules and you can make sure that they align with your values today instead of waiting for tomorrow. Absolutely. Now, if you are listening and you haven't heard of Ramit uh, before, welcome, this is Ramit. Let's take it back. We've just covered a bit of ground here. So we've got lots to talk about. Your book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Talk to us about the journey of how that book started, why it started. And for those who really want to know who we're dealing with here, is it true that you've got maybe a million readers of your blog? More than a million readers, many millions. Um, The book itself has sold over a million copies. So I feel very fortunate. The best thing an author ever hopes is that somebody somewhere reads the work that you spent years creating. And, you know, I see people walking around with it. I have people coming up to me on the street saying, oh my God, I subscribed to your newsletter. And that is enormously rewarding. The way that the book came about was... uh, When I was in college, I tried to teach my friends about money. I had learned because I took some of my college scholarship money and invested it and lost it and all this stuff. And so I figured I'll teach my friends for free. Well, it turns out most people do not want to go to an event about money. They hate events about money, even at the age of 19 or 20. And so I said, all right, these lazy college kids aren't coming to my free event. Maybe I will create a blog. I started writing a blog and I always wanted to write like you and I are sitting here talking. Let's grab a beer. Let's just talk about money in a really honest way. The blog went on, started growing a lot. And I I always treat my work like an experimental lab. I'm testing different approaches. After a few years, I had a large audience and I had tested my financial system. So I knew it worked. If you made 45,000 
or 350,000. If you have an irregular income, like you're driving an Uber or something, or you have a very stable uh, type of job. Investments, I could, I'd figured out how to explain investing so that it made sense. You know, most people, when they hear investing, they say, that sounds like gambling. That sounds scary. And I actually think money can be fun. I have a lot of examples of ways where everyday people started investing and they started to make a considerable amount of money. So I was tired of answering the same 10 questions. I said, let me just write this in a book. I'll tell you the answers to your 10 questions and the 20 you should be asking and you are not. And that was where I got the decision to begin writing the book. And in the book, you, you know, it's all about, and you mentioned it before, about how to live your rich life. And the journal that you've got out, you've, you're kind of taking this to the next level and you are really talking about getting our thoughts out of our head onto paper. And I know the journal, it's not for the maths nerds, is it? It's like, if you're an engineer, no. <laughs> save your money. Yeah, don't buy this. If you want to get a, a multivariate, uh, some calculation and do all your pivot tables and then brag to your fire friends about, you know, your analysis, don't, just don't buy this book, okay? But for everyone else, all the normal people out there, you want to actually master your money psychology? You, for the first time, do you want to zoom out of paying your monthly bills and actually dream about what you want to use your money for? Then yes, I would get this journal. You see, there's two people who I think this journal is perfect for. The first, as much as I want, there are just some people in the world who are never going to buy a book about money. They don't want to sit there and learn about asset allocation and tax optimization. They're just not going to do it. Fine. And there's a second group. Maybe they used my book and they accumulated a pretty good amount of money. They go, all right, well, I did all this stuff. I have my money automated. I spend less than an hour a month on it. What's next? What do I do now? Both of those categories would benefit from picking this journal up, getting their favorite cup of coffee, and sitting down, giving yourself the gift of 15 minutes a week to just dream. You know, I think um, when most of us think about money, you kind of expect somebody like me to come on here wearing some poorly fitting suit and tell you all, oh, you need to cut back on this and that, and you can't do that, and you're bad. Not my style, as you can tell. I would rather start by asking people, what's your rich life? What do you love to spend on? And you know, most people, they actually get stumped with that question. I go, what's your rich life? They go, uh, I wanna do what I want, when I want. I go, okay, so what do you wanna do? And they go, uh, because after a lifetime of getting a paycheck, paying our bills, maybe having a little bit left over, life has become so transactional that we forget what our rich life really is. And this journal will help you redesign it. In the journal, you talked about the $3 decision versus the $30,000 decision. And I was just like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like you. And I think like kind of attracts like, like I'm a spender by nature. Like I'm horrific at saving money. So I became a good investor. Mm. So I had to kind of change my mindset. I'm a fantastic investor. I can't save money. If I've got money around, it grows legs. It's, it's just, I'm a magician. Make money disappear. Talk to us about the 30 versus the $3 decisions. Okay. So first off, it's very interesting what you said because think about it. With money, everybody teaches us how to save, but nobody teaches us how to spend money meaningfully. Nobody. So you've got a million people out there telling you, you've got to disable your oven light so you can save 11 cents per year. Okay. First of all, I'm not going to do that. It's a waste of my time. But second, 
how do I actually learn to spend money on the things I love? And part of what we can do is we can start off by asking $30,000 questions instead of $3 questions. Here's what I mean. When, when you ask people the kind of stuff on their mind about money, they'll say, I feel guilt, I worry, I feel anxiety, I feel stressed. I say, well, what kind of questions go through your mind on a daily basis about money? Um, should I buy coffee? Can I afford this thing at the grocery store? Um, can I go on vacation this year? I probably should be saving for retirement, but I don't. You know, these are, these are most of them, except for the last one, is a $3 question. How much the price of broccoli costs is not going to materially change your life. And yet, almost none of us ask $30,000 questions. Have I set up automatic investments? Do I understand my asset allocation? You know, the, mo the majority of people do not even know what that phrase means. Am I being paid what I'm worth? And if not, do I know the skills of how to negotiate my salary or find a new job or start a business on the side? If you get those five or 10 big wins in life right, you never have to worry about getting an extra Diet Coke or a second appetizer because those are $3 questions. Yeah, it's, I just think it's fascinating. Like we're all just illogical bags of chemicals, right? And I, I talk often about like, you've just got to practice. If, it's, if spending is a struggle for you, go, I'm going to allocate $20 this week and I just have to blow it on me. If $20 is too much, try $5 because it's only going to compound as we get older, right? Like we spend 40 years of our life accumulating. When you get to retirement age and you can draw down on your wealth or whatever, try flicking that switch yeah. overnight. It's not going to happen. Most pre-retiree clients that I get and I did have over that year of retirement, first year into retirement, they're drawing their income. You need to beg them to spend the money because they're going to take it with them if they yeah. don't like... It's a big shift, isn't it? It's huge. I remember speaking to a couple on my podcast. This is a different couple than the one we spoke about. And he sent me a note saying, my wife of 21 years is about to divorce me because I'm too cheap. Please help, in all caps. I was like, I'll take that call. So I got on the call with them. And by the way, you can listen to the recording of this actual real couple sharing real numbers. And she's furious, and rightfully so. He questions her on every financial decision and a variety of other things. And I, I finally ask him, all right, so how much are you worth? What's your net worth? And he says, $13 million. So you have to remember that most people hearing this are scoffing or laughing. Oh, so stupid. If I had a million dollars, I would be so generous. Oh, would you? Well, let's take a look at your spending today. Because if you don't have evidence of having the skill of spending generously or spending on things you love, then trust me, when you have 50,000 more or 500,000 more or even a million more, it's not gonna magically flip a switch as you said. You have not built that muscle of knowing how to spend your money intentionally. And that's why I created the journal. I want people to sit down today. I want you to get these provocative prompts that ask you, what's your perfect day? Hey, what do you actually wanna spend more on? If you could write your story, where would you spend more time and money? And then of course I wanna ask you, what are you currently doing that you don't need to? And I show ways of buying back your time, um, even using money to become happier. These are all things that we don't get the chance to think about if we are consumed with the day-to-day. -day. Do you think 
wealth just amplifies who you are. So if you're a jerk and you get $5 million lumped in your lap as a lottery win, you're just going to be a bigger jerk, right? If you're a stooge or a stingy person and you have all this money, you'll probably want to hide it, you know, have it more closely, right? Here's what I've learned about human nature. Um, We can change, but it's very difficult and it requires a reason to change. So we have a phrase, I don't know if you've heard this growing up, the phrase goes, um, money changes people. Have you heard that phrase? And it's always said negatively, as if money's going to make you a bad person. And I always think to myself, yeah, money changed me. It should. Money made me more spontaneous, more adventurous, more generous. But I had to work. That That took a lot of work to learn how to do that. That's why I do what I do. So you, let's say somebody right now, if, if you were gifted a million dollars or $5 million, what would you do with it? This is quite a provocative question. What do you think the average person would say? Pay off the mortgage, buy a new car. Yeah, that's true. And what else? Oh, do something for their family and friends, yeah. go on a holiday, kids' education. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. They don't, they don't even usually get that far. I think you're, you're certainly more imaginative than them. Oftentimes, they will say, I'd pay off all my debt. I go, okay, that sounds great. What else? And then, and then a lot of them go, well, I actually wouldn't change a thing. If I had a million or I had five million. And, I, and they expect me to start applauding them. You know, oh, you're so great. You're living such a frugal life. I go, you have five million free dollars post-tax and you're telling me you're going to still eat at Chipotle every day? You're telling me you're going to the same bar? You're wearing the same clothes? What a tragedy. You're tipping the same amount? What kind of life is this? And it's no wonder that you are not moving towards a rich life because even in this hypothetical where you have 5 million or make it 50 million, I don't care, your dream life involves you doing exactly the same thing, sitting on exactly the same couch every day. No wonder, because you got no vision. So we have to have a beautifully crisp vision of a rich life. And you wanna do this exercise right now? Let's do it together and maybe everybody listening yeah. will, will do it together with us. And, th- and then I wanna do an exercise with you as oh well. Oh my God, okay, wait, usually I do the exercises. I'm getting nervous now, but okay, okay, I'll, I'll play ball. Yeah. Here, here's my exercise yeah. for the rich life. So I- I'll say to you, Glenn, what is your rich life? My rich life, and this, it sounds weird, and I know I'm very privileged, but I've got complete control over my time at the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have to be anywhere for anyone. I get what I want, quote unquote, when I need. I'm not that extravagant. I like what I like. Um, so I, I think that really is my rich life at the moment. Okay. Uh, I don't have a family at the moment. Um, I'm not married. Because for me, the anxiety that, you know, I recently, you know, have, did you read your audio book? Yeah. Yeah. So I last year I released a book. I read the audio book. Had to go to the studio for like seven days straight because it was like 10 hours of audio, right? And that was the toughest thing of my life 
because I had to be at the studio at 10 a.m. every morning. <laughs> Wait, this example is not relatable to anyone right now. Okay, t- <laughs> tough guy had to read his own book by being there at 10 a.m. I'm like, uh, boo-hoo, my friend. Okay, uh, hold on. Let, for the let me wheel you back for I, your own sake. I want to hear about the audiobook later, but you have a great life right now, and it yeah. sounds like it's a rich life. But let's say you could do even more. What would that rich life be? For me personally, and I was only, because I'm actually in the States at the moment in Columbus, Ohio, visiting friends. I was just down at FinCon in Florida and, um, um, you know, there was a billion dollar lottery here in the States the other day, right? And I I said to my American friend, like, just joking, like, oh, buy me a ticket, right? Like, <laughs> so I sent him some uh, some BNB coin because that's all I had <laughs> into his wallet. And we're like, well, what would we do? Like if we, if there's a billion dollars and we took, um, you know, 500 million for tax mm-hmm. and then we split it 250. I'm like, I would probably start some type of foundation or annuity mm-hmm. and just, I don't know, give it away and enjoy. I, I'm a bit of a freak because I've kind of, it sounds really bad, but I, I kind of get what I want materially. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the the that curve that we all build with our life where we start our career, get our money, get our things underway, like there's a critical mass that we all got to get to. And I have been at that critical mass for some time now. Fantastic. Uh, I built and sold a business. So I'm, I'm a bit of an outlier. Like, sure, I'm not allergic to money and I'll take it, but I'm at the stage where I'd probably look at that focus like, what social good could I do with that Beautiful. for the long term? Not just, and for me, it's not like, oh, here's a check for $20 million to the Against Malaria Foundation. It would be like, how do we create a foundation that's a big annuity that has mm-hmm. a mandate to continually give forever? I don't know. Um, I like that. That's- I'm probably not the best person to do a philosophical example with. <laughs> but No, I hey, actually here, love, right? I love this example. So, you know, what I'm hearing from you is, with the hypothetical of winning a billion dollars, I think a lot of people go towards um, the legacy they will leave behind. They start thinking about generosity and charity and philanthropy. I think that's amazing. Um, When I ask people kind of what is their rich life, they'll often give me really big generalities. So they'll say stuff like, I want to do what I want when I want. We talked about that. I said, what else do you, what do you like to do? They'll go, um, Travel. They always say travel, even if they haven't traveled in the last 10 years. I say, okay, tell me about traveling. Where do you want to go? And then it's so funny because they go, um, Europe. So we start at just this very broad place. But by the end of talking to them, I get really curious. And I say, where in Europe? And they're kind of surprised because most people have not been genuinely asked, what do you want to do in your life? What excites you? What gets you really inspired? And they go, oh, you know, there's this thing. I've always, I, I shouldn't say it. I go, no, 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 tell me. I'm curious. You know, I've always wanted to go to the Colosseum in Rome. And then my dream is to sit on a rooftop at this one place in Rome. I saw it on an Instagram page and watch the sunset while drinking wine. I said, oh my God, that sounds amazing. I said, what would make that even more special for you? And now they are completely silent. Sometimes this is where people start to cry. Why? Because they've never truly explored that place of possibility. To them, money is always bills, can't afford this, I'm never going to have enough. And here we are, just for a moment, we're not talking about 
allocations and expense ratios. We're talking about a beautiful moment and at the highest levels of money, it always involves a who. As you said, in the early days of money, it's about what. What can I buy? What can I accumulate? What, what, what? And I have no problem with that. I want people to accumulate things they love. But at the highest levels of money, it's always about who. Who can I take? Who can I be generous with, etc. So they'll answer me. They'll say, you know what? Um, my mom has always wanted to go to Europe, but she's got a, a wheelchair and I don't know if we could do it. And I said, well, we could use money to solve that problem. We could have a special uh, thing, system that she uses, a walker. Okay. Wait, hold on. If she's in a wheelchair, she can't use a walker. We'll have something where we can use money to get her up to see that sunset. And they, they are just like, oh my God. I said, that is an example of a crisp vision for a rich life. Mm. That is what gets people excited about making changes, about investing more, saving more, paying off debt more aggressively. But you have to get vivid and you have to get specific. You have to know exactly where you're going to go, who you're going to take with you, even what food you're going to eat, because that's what gets people motivated. But if we just say words like, I want to travel or I want to save or someday I'll do this thing, that's what keeps us stuck. Mm. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and I'll ask Ramit about a hypothetical and then we're going to answer a couple of listener questions about couples and money. So we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, we're back. Actually, just on the whole um, money gives you options, and this is my personality, right? Don't at me. I know it's not great for the environment, but whatever. I'm sorry, everyone. I was just at FinCon in Orlando, Florida. I love a really nice coffee. I've got V60 pour over Glee Coffee Roasters, a friend of the show, took some of their coffee. Get to the hotel room. I, I had a hand grinder. I had my little mini scales, all that stuff. There's no electric kettle in the... Um, hotel room. So my friend and I, Victoria, we both were up at 7 a.m. a bit jet lagged. We text, who's awake? Like, we've got to go to Walmart and buy two electric kettles for the whole hotel room. And, you know, that $19 for the five nights there just changed my life. And so many people couldn't 
cross that bridge of just spending $20 to enhance their whole week. And it's, yeah, sure, I hope someone took that kettle home. Uh, but I just think I will throw money at problems to make my life better. I think it's a lovely example of using money to create a better experience for yourself. And I like that it's $20. We're not talking about $2,000. We're talking about $20. Um, I often find that people, some people find it challenging to spend money. It's interesting. Uh, they are very, very happy to spend money on their kids. And sometimes I joke and around. Pets. Yeah, I go, listen, you got to normalize spending as much on yourself as you spend on your dog. Okay. And I'm not trying to pick a fight with dog owners because I'm afraid of you all. All right. I don't have a dog. I don't want a dog. Don't at me. Okay, please. I want to talk about your pets that slobber all over your face. It's disgusting. However, how come everyone's so comfortable spending money on their dogs but not themselves? Anyone ever find that interesting? I think it's great to be generous with your pets and your family. Now, I'm not equating the two, but okay, fine. But isn't it, isn't it also special to be able to model generosity by spending on yourself? So I remember... There was um, a couple that I spoke to on my podcast, and she spent a lot on Target. Again, in America, we have a weird obsession with Target. I don't know why. There's like a there's a whole meme culture about oh, I was gonna only spend twenty dollars at Target, and then I came out with four hundred. I'm like, that's not funny, but okay. So I asked her, "What's your rich life?" and she told me Target. Now I rarely do this because I think your rich life is yours, and if you want to do something that I don't agree with, I don't care. It's your rich life, not mine. But I said, listen. Target cannot be your rich life. Your rich life cannot be going into a store of commodities to buy a bunch of junk that you don't even need. It just can't. And I asked her then, I said, what do you even buy at Target? So her first answer, she didn't miss a beat. She goes, well, I, you know, I buy a lot of stuff for the kids. That's code for I'm a good mom. And I said, okay, what else do you buy? I buy supplies, I buy this, I buy that. I said, what do you feel when you walk into Target? And she, she opened up. She said, I feel excitement. It feels like the lottery. It feels like I'm at a carnival. You know, I can, who knows what's going to be in there? And I was really curious. So I kept asking her questions. I said, when do you first remember going to Target? She said, when my mom would take me. So her mom took her and it was a special time for the two of them. And she would get a little treat. And now she's done very well financially, but she still sees Target as the rich. And she overspends there. And it was causing a lot of conflict with her partner. I said, do you bring anyone to Target with you? She said, and she starts to realize, I bring my daughter. So she was passing mm -hmm. down the same money messages she learned from her mom to her daughter. And I share this because I want to emphasize, you can use money however you want. If you truly love a certain type of food or a certain type of car and you can afford it, I think that's fantastic. But when I go through this money dials exercise and rich life exercise and all the other things you find in this journal, you will quickly realize that it's a tragedy to live a smaller life than you have to. And when she told me that her rich life was Target and she was doing financially very well, I thought to myself, there are so many bigger, more powerful lessons you could be teaching your family and also things you could be doing for yourself. So in the end, I think if you listen to the episode, you'll discover that she found it very difficult to even contemplate getting a massage for herself. She loves a massage. She wants a massage. 
but she couldn't even fathom the idea of spending that on herself. And with some work, I was able to help her realize you're worth it and you should spend on the things that are meaningful to you as well as to the people around you. I often say uh, like in those situations where it's like, we've got the money, so there's no question about that. What would you tell your best friend to do in that situation? It's good. And when you need advice, well, what would you tell your best friend? Because that's usually the, it will remove you from the third, like and put you into the third person about yourself. It's really good. Okay, confession time. Well, I was thinking actually weirdly in prepping for this episode and I'm going to run it through uh, the My Millennial Money Facebook group and turn it into an episode myself. So, thanks for, you know, helping me create content by prepping for this episode. I want to talk about deathbed confessions. Now, my whole, I guess, premise when I'm teaching people about money is do yourself of tomorrow a favor today. Mm. Like that's all we've got to do, right? Do yourself tomorrow a favor today. When you're on your deathbed, you've got a note, a notebook, and you're going to write, Ramit, Sethi, I am so glad I did these three things in my life. Okay. Number one. What I, are those I already three know things? what they are. Number one. Awesome. Destroyed every troll on Twitter left and right for decades and just verbally eviscerated them and their terrible logic. I will thank myself on my deathbed. If my wife is listening to this, she's going to be rolling her eyes so hard. But you know that's, <laughs> hey, we got to do what makes us happy. Okay, number one. Number two, what am I glad I did? Um, I'm glad I built the habit of investing from an early age. Really important, and it just became part of my life. And number three, I'm glad that I not only spent it on things I loved for myself, but I involved the people around me. And I, I say it broadly, when I think about it for my own life, it is I involve my loved ones, my wife. Um, we bring our family when we travel sometimes. Uh, you know, lavish attention on my customers and my business. At a certain point, like I said, the what, you already checked all the boxes on that, but like who mm -hmm. became way more important. Those are my deathbed confessions in order of importance. <laughs> so for those out there who have a confession about destroying trolls, well, start destroying them today. Yes, don't wait. Too late. Do not wait. Yeah, yeah, listen, you're at your intellectual best right now. You're sharp and it keeps you sharp. You know, some people play these games. They do these brain games that supposedly keep your mind sharp. First of all, they don't work, but whatever. Mm. You know, a real way to keep your mind sharp is to engage with people online who believe that owning a house is always the best investment, which is totally not true. That crypto is a fantastic investment that should represent 98% of your portfolio. All those people are broke. They all disappeared. Jeez. And a variety of other trolls that live online. I find it very enjoyable and frankly, quite intellectually stimulating. Mm. Is that me? Yeah. Is that weird? No, I actually, people say to me, don't feed the trolls. I'm like, Who says that? I, I do it for fun. Um, <laughs> Wait, you do this too? Yeah, we're very similar. Yeah. What? I mean, My man. if someone like adds me, I just write like, okay. Or I'll write like, <laughs> I'm happy to give you a refund of the free content. Or, <laughs> um, you know. I'll tell you what, I I'll tell you why I find it so interesting So to speak to these trolls. I, I, I like to comment back and forth with them. I actually really do like it. Um, why? Because in my day-to-day -day life, I don't have a lot of friends like that. You know, my friends are pretty normal people. 
even for me being an internet guy and knowing a lot of these internet people. So I like the fact that someone, they, they like basically kick in my door into my living room and they go, you're wrong. I go, okay, let's talk about it. Let's look at the math. Is it true? You really believe that? Well, let's look at what the data shows us. And it helps me sharpen my own arguments. And, you know, I also secretly have a dream that one day I will encounter one smart troll. Now, listen, I've only been doing this for 20 years. I've interacted with literally millions of people. There's someone out there, maybe they're in Australia listening right now and they're actually intelligent and have a good argument. Please, I'm begging the world, please make yourself known because so far I have not found them yet. You know what I do? I've got this unique skill. Well, it's probably just, I'm a bit of a freak, but whatever. Like someone has a go at me online. Okay. I'll record a video, <laughs> post it back to them, and they turn out to be a fan. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Oh, you're so right. Honestly, the people who come up are so nice. People are so nice in general, in, in person. But online, it really creates this weird echo chamber where people misbehave. So the fact when you do that, sometimes I just write back to someone who sends me this really nasty email, and I'll go, um, what's wrong? Are you having a bad hair day? Let me know. And yeah. like 50% yeah. of the time, they just go, oh my God, I had no idea that anyone was actually reading that. Which kind of leads to the next question, which is, if you didn't think anyone was reading this, why did you send a 10-paragraph email? But mm-hmm. I have learned that when you ask them that, they don't really respond kindly. So, All right, we got off track, but it was fun. Um, last 15 minutes, have you got 15? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Wait, I mean, if you first have of all, go, when, you, when you said we got off track, I'm like, that was that was amazing. That was a gift. So thank you for letting me talk about trolls. Yes, I have as much time as you need. All right, sweet. Well, we'll be done in two hours. <laughs> um, couples and money. How do you and Cassandra manage money between each other? So w- when we started, um, we had very different philosophies and experiences with money. Um, I had been running my business for, at that time, about 15 years and um, my, I, I'm an entrepreneur. She at that time was not. We. Oh, just a question. Sorry, what age were you both when you met? Um, like early 30s. Yeah, cool, yeah. cool. And so, um, you know, wh- when we got married, we started to kind of discuss joint finances and, and all kinds of philosophies on investment stuff. Now, I, listen, I was like... Uh, have you ever read a book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich? Why don't you go ahead and take a look at this? And um, You might pick a couple of notes up. Yeah, um, send an email to the author if you got any questions. No, we actually, you know what? It was a lot more challenging than I thought because it's one thing to write a book, but my wife is not my student. And, and when you're discussing money with your partner, it, it's by definition, you have to compromise. It involves emotions, involves different philosophies. So for example... How much do we want to keep in our checking account? That's a, that was a very vibrant discussion. Um, how much, what percentage should we be investing? How do we decide if one person wants to stay at a nicer hotel? How do we decide? How do we make that decision? These are all things that you have to discuss. Now, um, I've learned so much in doing, in creating a system with my wife. So each month we sit down, we look at the numbers, we have a rich life review. Um, we, we compliment each other on something that we appreciate about the other when it comes to, you know, I really appreciate that you book our flights. You always do a great job. We have a running list of questions. If there's any topics, we have a Google Doc with an agenda. 
And um, we keep a list of other things that we need to discuss. But I will say this. We're not, first of all, we're not like pinging each other with a million money questions throughout the month. I find that like, I don't want to live that kind of life. And second, we spend a lot of time planning the next year every December. So we will do an annual Rich Life Review and we will look at our spending and we'll go, okay, last year we planned to spend, I don't know, let's say $100 a month on gifts. Wow, it was actually like 170 Should we adjust that number or did we give too many gifts? Um, what do we expect our income to be next year? Should we save more, invest? What kind of things are coming up for us? And also, not just talking about the spreadsheet, but what kind of life do we want to live next year? How much do we want to travel? Where do we want to go? Who do we want to bring with us? Those are the kind of discussions that we have. Mm. So it's all, it's, it's getting on the same page with the big vision stuff, not in the weeds splitting hairs. Correct. That's a, that's a great um, distinction. You know, I believe there are a few big values that you should be aligned on. That would be things like, what is our savings rate? How much do we invest? How do we make decisions, big spending decisions? I'm not talking about the price of broccoli, but I am talking about how much are we going to spend on holidays? How, are we going to buy a car, a house? How, how much are we going to allocate if, for children? All that. Those are big ones. And then the weeds, the day-to-day, those are things that you can typically plan for 80% of them. And the last 20% you can discuss once a month in a one-hour session. Mm. I, I found like for me being the spender as humans, like we are going to have the financial blowouts like, oh, that month we spent 150 on gifts. But for me, it was putting the systems and structure in place. So a blowout was only 50 or $100, not $2,000. Correct. I think that's totally right. I think when you get really, really savvy with money, then you become more fluid with it. So the trajectory I typically see and certainly saw with myself was in the early days, you want to be, you want to track every last number because you need to develop an instinct for money. And as you get more money and more skills at managing that money, you become more fluid. You go, okay, you know, we give ourselves 300 bucks a month to eat out. Wow. This month we spent 600. Okay. Why? Let's, let's break it down. Well, we had that one anniversary dinner and we had friends from out of town. Okay, it's no big it's no big deal. We noticed it. Next month we're going to cut it down by 2 and the month after that we'll cut it down by 2 and we'll be right back on track. It's less heated and more okay, let's let's figure out a way to fix it. Also, the more savvy you get, the more you realize to be very careful about the big financial decisions in life. Most people overspend in two key areas, their house and their car. So you can optimize all you want for, you know, uh, the gloves that you buy. But if you have a house and a car and your fixed expenses are too expensive, there's no way you're going to get out of that hole. Do you have any rules of thumb in your life for your own car? Like, do you just pay, write a check, pay cash? Yeah, I, I, like- I love different guidelines and rules. So I create them for myself. So uh, first off, just general, you can search Ramit's 10 money rules and you can see some of my 10 money rules just globally. Um, in terms of a car, um, I have a couple different things. One, would, so it would be I should be able to pay for it in cash. It doesn't mean I have to pay for it in cash, depending on interest rates, but I should be able to. Um, and then I want to typically buy the best and hold it for the long term. So in my case, I have an old car. I don't really care about cars at this stage of life. 
So my car is like, I haven't had a payment on it in over 10 years, but there are other things I care Can about. Can I guess about. what type of car it is? Of course. You already know what it is. Just look at me. I, I don't think. What I, kind of car does a guy like me drive? It, it's either, okay. It's either like a Honda Pilot, <laughs> a Prius, a Camry or a Subaru. Wait, what? Actually, I don't know. It, so you, you think because I'm an Indian guy, I drive a Honda or a Toyota? A little bit. That's 100% correct. It's a Honda yeah. Accord. Ah, oh, I. Great cars. Great cars. Great cars. He's going to run forever. Yeah, you can't kill it. See, my problem is I love cars and I buy a new one. I've got a Lexus 2017 IS350F Sport. Okay, that's nice. But how often do you buy a new one? Oh, oh, I don't buy brand new, but I'll upgrade every couple of years. Why not just lease? I don't want payments. I just I just write a check. Like I just pay for them cash. Uh huh. Yeah. Interesting. Lexus is and nice I've got car. A, I've got a yeah. The, I I tell people it's a Camry Sport, um, <laughs> so I don't get the shade. Uh, and I've got a uh, a Ford Ranger four wheel drive that I just use to tow my boat. No, are you telling me the truth? Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay, at least you can afford I've it. I've got a big-ass C-Ray boat that holds like 12 people and it's Oh my God. Okay, hold on. I need to explain why I reacted that way. Okay, so every time I talk to someone on my podcast who's in financial trouble, like 90% of the time, they have either overspent on their house or their car. Now, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but in America, people are so delusional about their cars. Everybody believes that they are entitled to a $75,000 truck. And for whatever reason, you know, SUVs and trucks are the most popular vehicle in 48 out of our 50 states. So I go, um, you have a, your truck, how much did that thing cost? They go, oh, it, it was totally fine. My payments are, are low. I go, don't tell me about your payments. Tell me how much the car costs. They go, it's uh, $72,000. I go, oh, okay. How much is your income? Oh, it's um, $105,000. I go, ah, uh, okay. How did you decide that you could afford that truck? And they look at me like I'm insane. They go, my sales guy, Chet, told me that I could afford the monthly payments. And I'm like, Ramit, be nice, be nice. They're your guests. I go, okay, um, right now you're in severe debt and you can't make ends meet. You know, your wife is crying. Um, do you think that there might be like something we could do about this? Oh, no, 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 I need the truck. I go, you need it. How come you need it? And they go, I got to tow my boat. I go, what the hell? He's my people. Dude, Glenn, that's why I reacted the way I do. Now, maybe you can do it, Glenn, because you got the money. Mm -hmm. But in their case, oftentimes, the, the folks who are in financial trouble, they have tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. They don't understand how the pieces fit together. So one of the things I really enjoy, I mean, I have a little fun. You know, obviously, you got to have some fun with money. But I, I do like to show people, you know, you see your truck as a monthly payment. It's, you know, it's 600 bucks or 800 bucks. But when you factor in all these phantom costs, it's actually 1800 a month. And with interest, that truck is going to cost you $110,000. And when they hear that and they understand transaction costs and all this stuff, they go, oh my God, you can kind of see it in their eyes. And I love that moment. Mm. Yeah. But it's, it's a psychology thing. Like I don't like towing around debt payments. So like just the feeling of it, like I'd rather pay for it. Mm -hmm. I can afford it because it's, you know, it's easier to spend $2,000 a month than it is to literally transfer. Like my ute was only $30,000, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, 
not huge. And I think the Lexus was 42,000. So, you know, in terms of my income and that type of money, it's, it's almost, you know, it really doesn't move the needle. Like, um, but yeah, I, I just love my cars and, you know, I, I tell this story on the podcast all the time that I've got a secondhand dining room table in my house that a client gave to me 12 <laughs> years ago and I don't actually care about tables and furniture. Yeah. So it's just the, the values play, right? Totally. So. It's important. You know, I, I love to hear the things people spend more on and then I want to hear the stuff they don't care about at all. I, I like that barbell approach of spending a lot on something and also virtually nothing on other things. Yeah. And everyone, if you've got a problem with me spending that much money on cars, that's okay. It's my money, not yours. All right, let's answer <laughs> a couple of quick questions and then I'm going to end with a, a question for you. Christopher Holstein said with couples, how to get on the same wavelength financially. And I think we kind of touched that with the big picture stuff. But there's a question here, one being comfortable with a bit of risk while the other one being paralyzed by overanalyzing. So, We've got the kind of um, the doer, let's just do this baby. And then we've got the thinker. Oh, got How do we meet in the middle with that? Okay. Um, I, I just spoke to a couple like this, episode 59 of my podcast. They have 98% of their- That podcast, it's just the I Will Teach You To Be Rich yeah, podcast. Yeah, excuse me, yeah. episode 59 of that podcast. And the, um, they have 98% of their portfolio in real estate. And she found it to be too risky. She was worried. She wanted to diversify. And he said, no, I want to double down on that. And so you can actually hear a real couple talking about this. And, you know, typically what happens um, before I come along is they'll, they'll talk to each other, but they'll be speaking different languages. One of them will be saying, I'm worried. And the other says, stop worrying. You don't need to worry. Like, we're doing great. Look, it's great. Um, we should just keep writing this. In your finances, what I typically find with couples is that they are missing one critical thing, which is a shared rich life vision. So I'll go through the whole process, um, which a lot of it you can find in this journal. And I will say, what's your rich life? What are we using the money for? When do we need it, etc.?" And then we reverse it all the way back to where their money is, how they're spending their money. And you, it becomes very evident. Oh my gosh, we, want, we claim we want to retire at 50. Well, we're going to need approximately this much money. Are we on track to do that? It's really hard for people to understand that until they go through this exercise. And suddenly they go, oh my God, we're spending way too much on our house or eating out or whatever. Let's just redirect it and we will feel so good. In other cases, you quickly discover like we already won. If we change nothing, we are going to succeed. So maybe we don't need to take all this risk. Maybe in order for us to feel good, we can find a nice, healthy balance and know that we're going to hit our goals, but also know that we're not going to blow ourselves up financially. Yeah, that's great. Aaron Knapp said, how to decide when to combine finances? As soon as possible. Well, when you're in a committed relationship. So yeah. I, you know, um, I would say marriage is good. Um, before that, most of the folks that I speak to, even if they're living together, do not combine finances. That's just kind of what I've observed. But when you get married, that's a great time to discuss it. And I'll just give you kind of the shorthand of how I would recommend couples do it. This is the simplest way. They have a joint account and then they have their own individual savings accounts. The joint account covers their joint expenses and you contribute proportionally. 
So if one person earns three times more than the other, they contribute three times as much. That's a pretty fair way. Um, although I will say this, you can take that rubric, which I talk about in you know, my journal and other places, and you can adapt it. If one person's got uh, a family need or something like that, you can adapt it. Fair is whatever the two of you decide. But in many cases, fair is not 50-50 if there's a huge income disparity. Yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, and one last listener question um, from Alan Guy. And I think, Alan, I met you at our Hobart show down in Tasmania. Hi, Alan. My question would be, what financial advantages or disadvantages does a couple have when it comes to building wealth, et cetera, compared to two single individuals? So that's the scale argument, would it not be? Yeah, I think... Uh a couple has some pretty significant advantages when it comes to um, growth and also diversification. Growth meaning two people, two incomes, presumably, can row in the same direction and get to a destination much faster. And you have to remember that if you're single, you're buying one loaf of bread. If you're in a relationship, you're still probably buying one loaf of bread. So there are a lot of- Not throwing half of it out. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So there's that. There's also diversification. At some point in your life, you or your partner is going to lose your job. At some point, something bad, somebody's going to get sick. It's normal. It happens. By being in a couple, you diversify that risk and you know that at those times, you can lean on your partner. That's a normal part of a financial or any type of relationship. I will say that probably a disadvantage is that you don't get to do it only your way. But the good news is that most people don't even have a way. Most people have no philosophy about money at all. So it's just to have to compromise. They're like, compromise? I don't even know what I'm doing anyway. So I think for that tiny percentage of people, the 1% or 2% that has a high, strong philosophy and this is my savings rate, I'm basically talking about myself. You realize, oh my gosh, in order to have a healthy relationship with money and with my partner, I will need to compromise and I will need to have a lot of joint discussions about money. It's, it's probably for the best, honestly. Yeah, no, that's awesome. When you say savings rate, do you mean, so for example, if someone's savings rate was 15%, mm-hmm. are you saying carving out 15% to either invest or save cash for whatever? Excellent question. Or, it, you know, yeah. it can be used both ways. So some people use savings rate for all savings and investments. Some people use it for just savings and then they have another term for their investments. It's You're right. It's a bit confusing and it's used differently in different circumstances. Yeah. And that's making a system that works for you yes. and hanging your hat on it and not whinging uh, in 10 years time if the system hasn't worked for you because you hung your hat on your decisions, right? That's why I tell people, if, if you don't know what you're doing, why don't you just do it my way? I know my way yeah. works. So yep. it, unless you have some strong reason to deviate, in which case, go ahead. It's up to you. It's your money. But sometimes, you know, when I'm starting out with something new that I don't know how to do, I just want to find someone who knows it and I trust them and I just do what they say. I find that very reassuring. Mm. Who's the most influential guest that you've interviewed uh, or talked with other than myself? <laughs> Great question. Um, You mean someone who's interviewed me or I've interviewed them on my podcast? Probably you've interacted with or been influenced by or you've had them on your podcast, whether it's 
don't know, whoever. Okay. Just someone who's left a mark on you. Um, so many. I, I remember a couple. Yeah, I'll speak to somebody I've interviewed because I love, I really love hearing the stories of everyday people and how money relates to them. I remember a couple that I spoke to on my podcast and they were a very nice couple. They had $825,000 of student debt and it was crippling for them, absolutely crippling. And they were, they had, I believe one child and they wanted more, but they weren't sure if they would be responsible bringing another child um, with that kind of debt. And so we talked about it. How did you end up in this situation? And it was such a fascinating and provocative call because student loans, especially in America, are a hot topic. And, and at the end, she had to leave early. We were just getting to this really, really poignant moment. And she had to leave because um, her child was crying. And I thought to myself, gosh, I wish life were just a little easier for them. Childcare had stopped for them during COVID. They couldn't get a better job because of a variety of reasons, including healthcare. And it was just, everything was just stacked against them just a little bit. And they had made some bad decisions. That couple um, really stood out to me as one of the reasons I do what I do because I don't think people need to become financial experts. I just want life to be a little easier for everybody when it comes to their money. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Was there anything that you wanted to get off your mind or have a rant about that I haven't provoked you with? Um, that's a very dangerous question. I'm not going to take the bait on that one. But if you all want to follow me on TikTok and Instagram, you will certainly see me rant about a lot of people, um, uh, good and bad, people who are doing amazing things with their money. And also just some bad logic that you'll often see touted around in the financial world. You know, uh, the coffee thing, the budget thing, the idea that getting a tax refund is a waste of money uh, and on and on and on. I like to, I like to show people the myths of money because I think it should be fun. I think we should have a little fun with money and apply it to our life. My favorite bad logic thing with money is people use the justification to buy a brand new car that we need it to be safe. Um, and if that was the case, by default, if you hang your hat on that logic, I need you to buy a brand new car every single year. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. So you can do that on uh, Instagram and tag at my millennial money. <laughs> Very good. I like that. <laughs> no, but uh, look, it's been real. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Have any, like, I live on a little island in the South Pacific. You may have heard of it, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any advice for a budding money influencer? Um, an author. Well, first of all, I'm really pleased and, and honored to have been to, to be able to speak to you today, and I would love to make it to Australia. Um, I, I just want to say, the Australians that I have talked to are fanatical about self development. I don't know what it is over there, but it is amazing, and I've got to come. Uh, my my advice, if if it if there's any advice I can share, would be, you've got something that makes you different, and I think if you refine that people want to hear it. And I was, I think over time, the world wants you to be vanilla. The world will try to get you to do the same thing as everyone else. And the minute you do that, the world abandons you. And so I have found a lot of joy in discovering how I'm different and being open and unapologetic about it. Always being tasteful, but just knowing like, not everybody has to agree, but I'm going to have fun doing this. And if I have fun, then I think other people will have fun. Awesome. 
Ramit Sethi, thank you so much. You can uh, check out his book, I'll Teach Be Rich. Uh, we'll put a link to the journal in the show notes. Check out the podcast. And yeah, if you ever need to jump on and have a chat to anyone on the island, let me know. And uh, you're more than welcome here anytime. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.